This is Top Landing Gear. That is the sound of the Red Arrows. We're at RAF Scampton and the first four ship of the new season for 2021 have just taken off on a practice session with the new Red One, new leader, uh, flight lieutenant or squadron leader, I think he now is, Tom Bold. And we're here to do the heritage tour here at RAF Scampton, which by the end of next year will no longer be the home of the Red Arrows. But so it's a great time to be here. Colin is with us from yeah, yeah. RAF Scampton to uh, give us a guided tour around the Heritage Centre. Uh, Colin, exciting times these, as um, with a new team just yeah, gearing up for next season. Yeah, they just started this week. So uh, Red One had a couple of solo flights last week, and now he's taking up uh, three with him. And these guys, over a period of time, we've added more aircraft. They will get faster, lower, nearer... And even though they're Typhoon pilots, they've never flew at 600 knots upside down at 50 feet before, so it's a bit of getting used to it. Yeah, in formation. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the future for the for the base, Colin? We're, we're saying just we're now that it's... Sure. they we will know exactly what they tell us, same as you, really. So there's no secrets, but um, we want to make this into some sort of museum going forward mm-hmm. we're already applying to be a, a charity and obviously in the future we will have to charge people to come in yeah and it'd be nice if we kept this hangar because it's a damn busless hangar and and have a look at a red arrows viewing area yes that sort of dream you say red arrows viewing area because they're moving down to waddington yeah, and they're still going to fly here this is red arrows airspace six miles in every direction six thousand feet nobody else is allowed in and um, that's quite unique belongs to the CAA. They can't give us any other airspace in the country, so it stays here. And there's 10 years of red hours left, so um, who knows after that? Because they want a new aircraft. Then. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned the Dan Busters. Of course, this is where 617 Squadron were based at the time of the yeah, Dan Busters 1943. Raid. So by 1943, we're getting these Lancasters in, which are quite heavy for a, a grass airfield. So the decision is most of the county, then all the bomber airfields are going to go to uh, concrete runways, so they've got to close the place down. But why they're closing it down and kicking out the existing squadrons, Hangar 2 here is empty for a couple of months. Danbus is a temporary squadron at the time. And there we go, that's why we got them. Ah, is that right? And it's wonderful to see these old hangars. You've got, well, at least four, yeah, four of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, one is derelict. Yeah. That's a warehouse. They're all Type C World War Chang is built in 35, 36. Yeah. That one you'll see in a minute. That's the museum, heritage centre, and then Hangar 4 is the Red Arrows. Do they have a preservation on them? Preservation order They're on them? They're called Grade 2 listed, but I think that just means you... Well, I don't know, really. That you don't have to upgrade them or anything. No. If you do, go use original stuff. These hangars will hold... Type C hangers are 300 feet long, so they will hold uh, six Lancasters or three Vulcans, nose to nose, two B-29s, which we had here in 48, or 14 stroke 15 Hawks. Did you have Vulcans here? Who were Vulcans oh, yes, based it's here? a nuclear base. Yeah, from 57. 60, 617 started here in 68, 
58, sorry. Yeah. And uh, they finished in 82. God. So the pans would have been out there oh, where, yeah. the, where the Vulcans would yeah. be standing on quick oh, direction yeah, the, of the... There's a group of them out there, but right down at the end of the runway is four, and that's where the QRA sat, so four balls with nuclear bombs on. Mm-hmm. And they dispatched, they've got to take off within four minutes. Wow. Which they did, regular. Wow, to see that being practiced yeah, must that, have been yeah. quite something. Well, and we had three squadrons here at any one time, so you're talking over 30 aircraft. Yeah. That's a lot of Vulcan oh, in the wow. Yeah. Imagine the noise of that. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. So there is, obviously, with it being a, a wartime airfield, there's a huge amount of history here, and it would, it would be it's really World sad War, to lose that. It's 1916 it? started. So basically, we're on a cliff, and it's uh, limestone, which is good drainage. And on this, it's, called, it's a hill, but it's called a cliff. And uh, the idea is that the wind whips up off the uh, cliff and picks the aircraft up in World War I. Oh, right. Waddington's the same, Ingham. Hemswell, Kurt and Lindsay, they're all on the same cliff. Are they? In 1916, you had Zeppelins coming across the UK from the East Coast. They're between 360 to 600 feet long. They're scary. They're bombing yeah. us. Yeah. First time we've ever been attacked by air. Don't have radars, so they put gridded it out the East Coast and uh, put searchlight units, which is what this was. Oh, but then right. we had aircraft that tried to shoot them down, which is impossible because they fly 10,000 feet higher. And then mainly what was here was a training base, really. Oh, how interesting. And then it closed down in 1920, and 35, 36, World War II is imminent, so the RAF had to expand pretty smartish, and, and, and this is why we're here. And most of Lincoln is Bomber Command. Yes. So most things I'm telling you represent the same, the other 45 airfields as well. Yeah. We all had Hamden's, we all had Manchester's, we all had Lancaster's, yeah. then Lincoln's. And then there's two or three that had Vulcans. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah. Must be an exciting like place to be. Yeah. So there's a lot of history, 104 years of history. So we don't want to lose that. No. How do you think this four-ship are looking, uh, Colin? Do you think they're tight enough? Very good, yeah. Do you? Yeah, uh, uh, he's only Any been criticism? here a week or so. Yeah. And they did loop the loops the other day. Uh, you know, when they're only five, six feet apart, that takes some doing. Yeah. I thought Red 3... There's no computers perhaps... in there. Yeah. It's pure analogue flying. Indeed. I thought Red 3 might have looked a little loose on a couple of manoeuvres. Well, I you think you better go and tell them. Well, I, I will. <laughs> well, uh, the saying goes, if you go to the briefing r- roof in, in there, they go through what they want to go through, yeah. then the guy films it over there, and when they go back to the briefing room... Over there being where to, the control tower is. Yeah, they yeah. have to point out their mistakes, and their mistake can compare with ours. So their mistake's an inch out. Yes. And if they don't own up, they get fined a cup of tea or something. That's the story. <laughs> I'm not, don't quote me on that, but that's, that's the story. I think it might be more than a cup of tea. Yeah, off your pot, bro. Well, they go are very, you. very professional. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad for three days' work. No. So these how? Are, these so, are the best pilots in the world. Oh, yeah. Best aerobatic pilots in the world. Yeah. Typhoon's got the best fighter pilots in the world. Yeah. Hercules has got the best transport apply, uh, pilots in the world. You have to be careful what you say. Yeah, yeah. best helicopter pilots. Where would you say they Um... In a helicopter base. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, a good one. I'm around here, so yeah. I am technical, but not, I'm not, I don't know everything about it. So. Yeah. Did you know James was an RAF helicopter pilot? Did he? Yes, he flew. He's probably the best helicopter pilot. No, I think it's unlikely. Right. He flew Wessex's. Ambulance here, that's about Wessex it. and then Puma, he did. Okay. Oh, look, look at this. At now they're looking, that's looking tighter, now I've mentioned it. Yeah. 
of that. No. I, I live here and I work here and yeah. I get more than that. I no. appreciate what that is. Yeah. Does anybody in the area get upset with it? Or... I, don't, I, mean, I, I love by everybody. Saying that, um, <laughs> uh, Lincoln taken a bit for granted, I'd say. Yeah, I'm not from Lincoln, so I appreciate that. Mm. And, and these people that come here, not only do they want to, they've driven, driven for three hours to come mm. and talk about Dambusters, but yeah. they come to see that yeah. because they'll tell me that, oh, I've seen them last, last year at Farnborough. Mm. Yeah, but we see them every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so, when you watch them from that end or that end of the airfield, it's a different perspective and it's, it's just as good. Yeah. yeah. What's the kind of build-up period now from going from this four-ship and building the size well, gonna, up to the nine? I can only guess what they normally do, because yeah. the COVID's changed, it, and we've got the same parts as last year, apart from Red One. Right. But on, in general, they will start October half-term uh, with the four-ship, and then they had two, three, four weeks, I'd say, another aircraft. By Christmas, sometimes, uh, the uh, synchro pair are together. And then the four will go up and the five will go up and the synchro pair. But the nine ship, you're talking end of February, beginning of right, not so Ma- uh, March. Yeah. Uh, beginning of April, then they will go to, well, the last few years have been Greece, and they will put the air show together. They have better weather there. You can see how bad ours is. Yes. And at the end of that, they have a PDA, uh, which is some sort of test, where they're, they're licensed to go over the crowds. And it's only then, if they pass that, they get their red suits. Don't think they've ever felt that. You come back here end of May as red arrows. Then you're away. So in the winter when they're training, you're talking Monday to Friday, three or four times a day, and in the summer they're doing air shows at weekend. Mm. So they'll it might be Thursday to Monday ish. Mm. And it's only in general I'm talking about. That's sort of how it works. But even last week, I saw on the last nine ship of 2020, when Martin Pert retired, yeah. there was already next year's possible pilots in the back seat. Oh, really? So it's a, it's a process throughout the year yeah. uh, of choosing the new pilots for next year. Wow. So it's nine ships, so it's three in, three out every year in, in general. Yes. And, and Red One is year four, five, and six. But because of COVID, they haven't got rid of three this year. That's the. Didn't need to. They've trained all year for, yeah, what, for five air shows, probably. <laughs> yeah. But Red One was due to retire, so he's yeah. left, yeah. yeah. Hasn't retired from the force, just from I the race. No. no, I think somebody says he's going Connorsby, I'm not sure what he's doing. Are they taking us up later? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in that queue before you. <laughs> Well, we're just about to walk inside the RAF Scampton Heritage Centre. Colin, what is here in the Heritage Centre? Or actually, first of all, just tell us about this big black barrel of a thing standing well, this outside. Is, uh, the Dembusters bouncing <laughs> bomb, uh, if you like. Uh, I've got three 617 bombs here, the tall boy and the Grand Slam. Uh, they didn't actually fly from here, but this is the bouncing bomb, or whatever you want to call it, and uh, weighs nine. Two five oh pounds, nearly five tons. And uh, before the war, the um, government was looking at ways of shortening the war. If we're going into that, and if you look at the Royal Valley, the Royal Valley is full of uh, electric plants and uh, armament plants and build, um, all kinds of. Can we start that again? Yeah, hydroelectric, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah, so this is the, the upkeep bomb, which is yeah. used in the Dambusters raid. That's right. 
So yeah, so if you're going to smash the Royal Valley, one way to do that is smash the dams. Now the gravity dams, the Mona and the Eda, are 100 feet thick of concrete and they're about 140 feet. So Barnes Wallace takes up the mantle, he's going to smash up. So he's thinking, it, first of all, the dams are protected by a torpedo nets, so you can't hit it through the water. And a lot of it lays on the top, so you can't skim stuff across it. Uh, to hit the dam, in, in 1942, accuracy in uh, bombing is measured in miles. <laughs> so they've got to yeah. hit it track on somehow. Yeah. And the only way to smash 100 feet thick of concrete is probably a 10-ton bomb landing near it. So how do we get it that near? So this thing, you release that from a Lancaster at 60 feet, straight on, you're going to get the accuracy. When you release it, it bounces on the water somehow, but it does. And there's a 500 RPM backspin, that controls the bounce. And what it does is then, when it bounces, it bounces over the top of the torpedo nets. And when it hits the dam, it doesn't explode, it sinks. But because you've got a reverse spin on it, it sort of comes away from the dam and then curls back in. So then it hit the wall again, and at 30 feet it will explode underwater. And if you, uh, if, I know, if you explode a bomb underwater or underground, it amplifies the uh, explosion. So now we don't need a 10-ton ten bomb, we don't need uh, an aircraft that can carry that. We can get over top of the torpedo nets and we can get it accurate. And they all thought he was a crazy man because hmm. he wanted to bounce a 5-ton bomb, but hmm. actually he was a genius. Yes. And this man, he invented the Wellington bomber and those two big bombs over there, Torboy and the Grand Slam, he probably gave Hitler more headaches than his wife. <laughs> why, why did the Dam Busters raid not... It was never repeated? Because well, they never really all, used the bouncing uh, bomb again. It was a lot of practice and a lot yeah. of training and a lot of equipment that was yeah. all last minute. And on the night of the raid... Oh, sorry, on the night of the raid, yeah, they lost 53 people out of 133. That's 40%. Yeah. That's nearly half your aircraft bombs, training skills, lost in three hours. Yeah. So so you, and that was a surprise raid. Yeah. Imagine that uh, we're going back together. So then they obviously started putting guards and aircraft nearby and, and netting yeah. and all that rubbish up, so they're waiting for us again. Yeah. But it also scared us because they could do it back. Yeah. A little bit. And also, you think about the engineering. Uh, if you if you over uh, if you overfill your washing machine, it spins, it vibrates around the kitchen. Well, this is a five-ton vibration piece of kit. It will smash the aircraft in half. Yeah. So the spin test and the engineer is superb, and it did vibrate the aircraft. Yeah. So they only put it on with ten minutes to go. Because there, again, was, uh, there was the, 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 they had a smaller bouncing bomb for the mosquitoes. Yeah, high bomb for mosquitoes. They were going to hit ships for that, but yeah. it, they, it didn't work out in the end. No. And that was the for the There was an argument who was going to use it they? first, yeah. Navy or the Royal Air Force. That's right, yeah. yeah. The Royal Air Force would run out of time because they had to do it at an optimum level of water mm. at the right time of year in the moonlight. Well, we just walked inside the hangar now and we are seeing pieces of 617 Squadron memorabilia in situ. And Colin, just tell us what... I think I can guess what this room is now. There's a desk, there's a black dog underneath it. Mm-hmm. Could this be something to do with Guy Gibson? Yeah, this is Gibson's office, and uh, we've redone it as it was before. Um, yeah, the dog's down there, yeah. But uh, there's only one picture on Google of the office, so we can copy that. This was derelict about eight years ago, so we've done this ourselves. So there's only one colour picture on Google, so you can get yeah. the colours. 
we had a, a college in and they put chemicals on the woodwork and found the original colour, so we got that right. The set out is off the picture, but also Hangar 3 is as it was in World War II, so you can copy that. Yeah. So we've put the false door back in. Oh, and then the flooring was done by the company that originally did it, and they said they don't do it anymore, but however, we will for you. They did, and did it for free. This is a prop, prop, proper bit of history. Uh... This is where 617 started. And 617 was a temporary squadron, and it's still going today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's come to life more times than your broadcasting career. <laughs> Well, leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's just incredible to be in here and see this tangible bit of history here, real, real history. And those names that are so well known. They you'll hear all of them in the, in the film. Yeah. Was any of the filming done here? Yeah. For the, for... So the film, uh, I, don't, I can't remember it all, but... A lot of the grass scenes in the afternoon waiting to take off, they're done outside Hangar 3, which is the wrong hangar. And because um, the control tower is in between 2 and 3 in World War 2, it's actually technically on the wrong side. All the fight and the bar scenes are done at the mess on the side of, it, on the, side of the uh, airfield. Ah. But you can only see that properly from where the houses are. Yeah. That, that's derelict at the minute, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the last ten minutes of the film, they're, they're on the way out on the one-way system. On your left, it's a two-storey building with four pillars outside, and that's where Gibson and Barnes-Wallace are chatting for the last ten minutes. And then the road you're going to drive out on, that's where the, Gibson walks off and the, and the credits come up. Wow. The, uh, they had four aircraft from the RAF that were in storage, and they converted them to... Dambuster Lancasters. Uh, if you went down Hemswell, that's where all the taxiing scenes were done. They had a load of Lincolns in storage, so you could put them in the background, and it looked like loads of Lancasters. And apparently the takeoff scenes were done at Curtin Lindsay, which is a, was still a grass airfield, but because it was a fighter airfield, the runway was shorter. So they basically reversed the Lancasters in the hedge full power. When they took off, they missed HQ by two feet. Oh. So there was only one take of that. Gosh. Mm. Where we were gliding yesterday, didn't they say they did... Yeah, that's, that's it. Oh, was Curtin and Lindsay. Yeah. Sorry, of course yeah. it was, yeah. Putting their hurricanes there and stuff. Wow. Gibson himself, if you read about it, yeah, born in 1918 in British India. And uh, they were on about coming back to England, the parents, to educate the kids, but they actually split up. I mean, the mother brought him and his brother and sister to Port Leavitt in Cornwall. Uh, he joined the RF in 36. His first operational squadron was 83 squadron, which came here. So he joined 83 at Turnhouse in Edinburgh. They jo- joined five bomber group here, so they came down here. So he was here before the war. He actually flew on the first day of the war on a seek and destroy mission for enemy shipping, complaining of bad weather. Uh, stayed here for so long, then he went to 29 squadron down at uh, Digby, which is the other side of Lincoln. That was a fighter airfield. He was flying. They were just getting rid of their blennings and getting these blue fighters in. So they wanted bomber pipes, a big aircraft. So he was defending the northeast of England why the Spitfire Americans are in made the south. In the south. In both fighter, that was. Yeah, blue fighter, yeah. yeah. Then 29 Squadron went down to Mainland Kent. He was down there for a year, depending on the Battle of Britain had finished. Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to have to move at some point, and he rejoined Bomber Command and joined 106 Squadron at Sidestone. By then, he's flying Lancasters. 
And by then, if you did a tour of 30 missions, I think only one in three crews survived a tour. He did. They asked him to do one more mission. They brought him here in 43. And they had, he helped them set up 6417 Squadron. He was 24 years old, wing commander, and done 174 it's missions. It's very similar to my career. <laughs> yeah. 174. Well, 174 missions? Yeah. And when you say sit up 617 from this room, mm. don't forget this place was empty because they were emptying the base off. So uh, there wasn't a pillar, a chair, a table, a typewriter, a bed, nothing. You need a 500-man crew for a ground crew and everything. So he set all that up and talked. And did he handpick those crews or were they just... When the film it showed you that, I'm not quite so sure. It wasn't as easy as the film made out. Yeah. There's a lot of people he did want yeah. and there's some he couldn't. I think Five Bomber Group was supposed to release one crew from each base. And yeah. I don't think they all did that. And rumour has it he was quite a hard taskmaster. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a difficult person. Not a very popular man. Right. But he's a man who can and did. Yeah. Mm. No doubt about that. Yeah. And he was the right That's person. Why he was selected, wasn't he? The right person in the right place. Do... 24 years old and he starts a squadron up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I could start my car up at 24. <laughs> 174 missions. Yeah. yeah. 24 years old. Yeah, yeah, we're lucky to have this. Yeah, yeah. they can't want to lose it. They can't lose it. No, 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 they no. can't lose it. I'm really glad I've just started uh, reading his book. Um, oh, James Holland's. Uh, James Holland's. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's quite a lot of, um, a lot of Dan Buster's books. Yeah, there are a lot. I've, I read uh, Guy Gibson's um, Enemy Coast Ahead uh, yeah. a couple of months ago, which is obviously it was written, you know. During the war, and yeah. obviously before he was killed, and it's uh, it, it's not all about the Dambusters. It's about no. his whole RAF career. I mean, it, it's it's a take, and he was asked to write it. I think wasn't he by the RAF? Yeah. I don't think it's what he wanted. If they grounded him. He would have been a nice trophy for the Germans. They got hold of him, yeah. so they grounded him for a year, and then that last mission was his last one. Yeah, one mission too many. What was he flying in the on his last mission? Uh, Mosquito. Mosquito. That was right. Yeah. 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 So he had a two man crew. When it crashed, they could only find body parts, and they thought the guy had bailed out one of them. But when they found the third hand, that they knew they got both guys, oh. gave them to the people in Holland in a box, the bits. And then a few days later, they found Sock with his name on. That's how they knew they got him. Christ. And a bit of the mosquito is in the museum here. Is it really? Yeah. Maudsley, Hopgood, Martin, Munro, McCarthy, Burpee, Knight, Townsend, Anthony. Incredible. See those names there. Yeah. Yeah. Bingy Young, Astle, Maltby. We all know this room so well, don't we? From the books and the films, but seeing him here in this office yeah. is something quite special. The, the film was based on uh, a book by Paul Brickle. He wrote the first one, and they also used Enemy Coast Ahead. Yeah. But when he wrote the book, if you read it, it's very, uh, because it was near the raid, it's very accurate in places, yeah. but because the raid was still secret, a lot of it. He's missed a lot of bits out. That's right. And that's why the film isn't 100% right. As uh, well. And um, uh, in um, Guy Gibson's book, he doesn't reference Barnes no. Wallace by name. No. He just says a tall, grey-haired gentleman. Mm. Uh, and, and, of course, we've got the benefit of hindsight now, haven't yeah. we? These, these guys didn't know what the target was, so the day of the raid, that's how yeah. secret it was. Yeah. Did they think it was shipping? Yeah, they thought it was a turpid. And, the, and we sank the turpits with yeah, them anyway. Was it, was it Grand Slam or Tall Boy? Grand Slam. Uh, tall Boy. Tall Boy. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the last one that tipped it over, the biggest 
the biggest uh, ship that Germans ever made, and we tipped it over with a tall boy. We'd already put a hole for it, but we didn't know that. So they towed it down the ford for safekeeping, and uh, it actually they moved it nearer Scotland so we could attack it from Scotland. And one of the bombs landed at the side and it tipped it over. Come on, that's a that's a big bomb. That is a big <laughs> bomb. Yeah. I mean, suppose that the um, Barnes Wallace ingenious yeah. the bouncing bomb, such a technical thing. Yeah. And then that one just make it big. but they wanted it fast and it wasn't that easy it's getting the right uh, explosives in there Mm. and also you haven't just got to design a bomb in five months time which is what we wanted because he offered them up years ago and they didn't want it you have to modify the Lancaster so you're chatting to Roy Chadwick in AV around saying can you modify your Lancaster I need bigger engines I need more powerful engines then I need some kit to actually put the bomb onto it so all that it wasn't just a bomb yeah. it was everything that went with it Vickers and, Vickers and um, Avro Avro Rose worked pretty closely together yeah, that's right. didn't they in the run up to after yeah. 6.7 was formed, six one seven was formed mm. they, they worked uh, I think at um, Weybridge Avro Avro guys were seconded to Weybridge mm. well, Wallace was a designer for Vickers wasn't he yeah they even did a lot of this Dambuster stuff in his spare time yeah they're working around the clock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. Brilliant. Where's next? Right, it's room. Sorry. So I would, I would go through the raid itself, which will take a long while. Okay. But it does show you on this board we have uh, 19 aircraft in order. Gibson first. Seven-man crew on a Lancaster. That's 133. Um... And these poppies on there, they are the guys that didn't bring come back. There's 53 of them. Yeah. So like an aircraft here, Hopgood crashed. This guy jumps out, that one, and this one here. Uh, they're all POWs. So it's three POWs, 133 men, 19 aircraft, 53 deaths. All in the space of a few hours. What was the reason for such a high... Uh, Flying low would be a part of it. So they flew with moonlight so you can see them, but they could see anyway. And also flying low, they probably flew at 100 feet all the way out there. Yeah. And uh, a couple of them hit pylons. That's how low they were flying. There is 10,000 guns in Germany shooting at them, basically, as well. I suppose we don't know whether they were shot down or crashed. Uh, a bit above, yeah, yeah. If you went so, through that, yeah, you yeah. could you could go through all that, yeah. The only guy surviving now is uh, Johnny Johnson. Yeah, he didn't have to buy a beer in Lincoln. I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's got his own seat at the Dambusters in. You probably sat in his seat. <laughs> you get out if he comes. Uh, yeah, he's been here a few times. Ninety-eight now, I think he is. Yeah, yeah. He comes into the Petwood as well, I think, a few times. Yeah, I think he lives in Bristol, but he's looked after up here. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that one of the things they were very worried about was if they mistimed the the, the bomb run, mm. that they would actually get blown up by their own weapon. That's right. I, I don't know if that ever actually happened, but no. Uh, if I, well, went yeah, over the top, uh, didn't they? I think um, Mosley's aircraft it, it landed on top of the dam, and the fragments probably smashed his aircraft. Nobody saw him again. But I'll show you here how it works. So watch this cable. I use this. So two things in the film. Uh, well, first of all, Lancaster itself, to put a five-ton bomb, you've got to take weight off it. So they took the mid-turret off, and it's more aerodynamic then. 
So mid gunner goes to front gunner, front gunner goes to bomb aimer. Um, to get this working, so 10 minutes to go, they're going to start spinning the bomb. So one of the guys will start spinning that. They'll also put these lights on. Um, these lights, you see it in the film as Gibson inventing that idea. He didn't. Mm-hmm. They were using this a year before on, on Coastal Command, mm-hmm. trying to look for submarines. They don't work in the sea because it's too choppy. But these two lights at 30 and 40 degrees, they create a figure of eight at 60 feet. The crossover, you know, at 60 feet. That's how it works. So someone's going to switch that on. Then once the bomb's spinning, the aircraft starts shaking. Plus you're flying low level, so you've got uh, vibration anyway. So when you're vibrating, the pilot's trying to get it straight and level, and then the flight engineer's trying, got the throttles to get the speed right. So you've got to get speed right, height right, straight and level. If you are one mil out to the left or right, the bomb will land on its side and curve off. But it's not that accurate. Uh, so that's not, that's not Gibson invented in the film. And the other thing in the film is called the downside which is this wooden piece of kit with some nails on it. £43,000 to buy one of them, by the way. What? Yeah, 43 grand. Anyway, so that's all it is. A couple of nails and a bit of wood, Dan sides. So the uh, bomb aim is sitting at the front of the aircraft for that, like that, and the two pins there, they've got to match up to the two sluice towers. They're about 700 feet apart. So the triangulation is 700 feet and 450 yards. When it all lines up, you release the bomb. That's how it works. And, so it, and margin, it's shaking as the well. The margin for error must have been massive. Yeah. And, and just the angles again as well. When yeah. they get there, they're struggling to get it. Yeah. The one thing that I never understood was how do they... The actual navigation of the aircraft. Because you've got to fly... I assume they're just aiming between the two... Yeah. D- directly between the two Yeah, well, you're relying on the guy there for this. But he's, he's going at the right time. Yeah. But if you're off-centre... The whole thing's gone to... Mm. Well, skin. yeah, I mean, you could obviously see a little bit of the movie, yeah. right? But uh, the other part is, what it don't show in the film is, so, uh, is this idea here, it's a piece of string. So, in the film, you'll see this Dan site, and that's true, and Gibson used it. It's not 100% accurate, but they said, if you've got a better idea, do something else, and they did. And this bit of string is not in the film. So we're looking at the plexiglass bimers. Yes. Uh, plexiglass dome here. Yeah. So they put, for the, um, for the sites, they put two China Graph marks. They're the sluice towers. Then the guy is, uh, he's at the front of the aircraft, laying on his stomach with a bit of string. He can now gauge the level of the flight with a bit of string. That's your top of your dam. And he puts his nose there and releases the bomb. <laughs> and because mean, some of these guys, where you went to two dams, the dams, the sluice towers are different sizes. So on here, there's two knots, one's for one dam and one's for the other. So the most accurate bombing raid in World War II is a bit of string and two torches. <laughs> it's incredible. You can imagine the tornado doing that. <laughs> wow. We need to take a picture of that. Yeah. So That's not in the film. Know. 11 aircraft use that, though. But it's not in the film. But that's how they did it. Should be in the film. I think that's just extraordinary. How long have you been this for? Seven or eight years, something like that. Where have you researched all this, Colin? Lots of books. Well, first of all, when you start here, you want to be a guide. You come here. Uh, you can get on their mailing list to tell you what tours are on. Come in with the guys. Follow them around with your notebook. Uh, and obviously after a certain point you think, well, I've got to read a Dan Buster's book, I've got to read Guy Gibson's book. So it all takes a long, long while to accumulate, but you can get around with a few notes and just keep building from there. So, yeah, it takes a long while. And I don't stop. 
Yeah. Do you love her? Hey. You love her? Yeah, I do. What, what do you love? Is it I like the so history I, or the jets or the... I've always been into aviation. Yeah. And now I've got a pass to get on an RAF base. <laughs> I've also got a pass to come on the RAF base at any time I like and watch the red hours from the front. Yeah. I also actually go down the red sometimes. Yeah. And I come here and I talk about aircraft for four hours instead of being at home, Ubering and cooking and all that. And uh, I meet people. And people have driven three and a half hours to come and see me and know that. Mm. Yeah. And I give them that. That's brilliant though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's nothing better than that, is there? No. That's my day off work. Yeah, superb. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the gentleman behind you? That is Martin. He's the Australian pilot, number third one in. He's a low-level expert. He taught. He he showed out the others how to fly at low level. Did he survive the war? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Not many did survive in the end. Yeah. I think. Yeah. The photograph here, um, yeah. Is this air crew, ground crew, the whole well, squadron? Well, it, it yeah, it's probably six one seven squadron, yeah. and obviously we don't know the date of it, but we guess that it's. Not after the raid because the dog ain't there and yeah. all the crew are. So right. it's probably the day before, really. Right. They're only here two months, really. And the dog feature didn't have you. Have you found oh, it? Yeah, it's the mascot of the, of the squadron. squadron. Mm-hmm. So when it got run over the day before, mm-hmm. they'd actually kept that secret as well. Yeah. The night before. Because it's a mascot, it doesn't yeah. look good if your no. mascot's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and in the film, again, go back to the film. It wasn't a hit and run like it shows there. Yeah. The dog did run out there and get run over. And it was, I think it was a couple from Cherry Willingham down the road. Mm-hmm. They took it in the guardhouse. The guardhouse brought it down on a bed, uh, which is downstairs somewhere hidden. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did ask one of the pilots to bear, uh, make a coffee, and he said no. So they actually buried it in a parachute at midnight outside his office mm-hmm. when he's over the dams. If they did, they didn't show you on the film. Mm-hmm. I said we spent ages in there, and I didn't even told him. What went on there? I'd ridden a half hour there, but yeah, right. So I won't go in there, but you can look in there. That that's um, the mosquito gifts and crashed in, or parts of it, and a replica. The one that he was, that killed him. Or? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's that? Was engine failure? There's no exact reason why. You can only but guess. He crashed the aircraft, caught fire, got killed. But even though people have said, well, uh, some guy, the Germans said they shot him down, nobody can prove that. The aircraft crashed. There's a lot of rumours of different reasons why it crashed. But nobody can be certain about that, no matter what you read. So he's buried in Steenberg in Holland, and there's a family there that look after the graves. Oh, right. So it's only just that small fragment, is it? That's the, yeah, and a bit there. From the original. Yeah. Bit. Because yeah. water's in it, so it didn't last long in the fire. Yeah. So that, that's your dam busters bit over. Is it? Yeah. This room down there, I'll just show you this, you can put it or not, but it is quite important. South, this room was, World War Two was the clerk's room, this is where we typing's done. We think it was separated by a pretend wall there. That was the map room, under lock and key in the dam busters time, because... It's a top secret raid. Them guys did not know what they were going to hit till the day of the raid. So the maps were hidden. So that was under lock and key. Two keys, one's in Gibson's pocket, one's on guard. That's how it stayed. That's the history of this room. Wow. But the main thing here is the VCs. 
Now, this is unprecedented here. So, VC, Victoria Cross, is the highest medal you can win for valour in the military. And most people die getting it, above and beyond the call of duty. There's, in Bomber Command, there's 23 VCs in World War II, and eight of them were Lincoln. And out there is eight in Lincoln with 45 airfields. We've got three. And nobody else has got that. In HQ, there'd be the original paintings and uh, a bust of these. We've also got a guy here uh, who won... The only person we know has won two medals on the same raid, and one of them is the George Medal. And we've also got George Cross winner as well here. So this is very, very important here. And the stories are fantastic. If you read about VC, they're not worth any when, when they're made... There's, I think if you watch a, a documentary by Clarkson, he tells you about a lump of metal that's left. It's, it's metal from a, a cannon in the Crimean War. Oh, yes. And they make them in batches and they're worth nothing. But once they've got a name and story on, they're worth a quarter of a million pounds. Which is why we haven't got one sitting over there. No. <laughs> if you do see one of them, they're probably a fake one. Yeah. Because they're just yeah. not... You just can't leave them lying around. No. Yeah, 1940, Leroy, first guy in Bomber Command. Um, he brought his crashed, well, his shot-up aircraft back to the UK somehow after a bombing raid. Didn't he get back? When he got back, uh, it was still dark, and, it, and he knew the hydraulics had gone, so he ain't going to get the wheels down. He's probably got to belly it in. The flaps are stuck down, he can't fly it properly. And when he got it here to get it in, he flew the aircraft until it was daylight, then winched the wheels down by hand, and they stayed down. Saved the crew's life. And a month later, this guy, on the way to, uh, in his Hamden bomber, it's a four-man crew. Who's this? This is John Hanna. Okay. Uh, four-man crew in, a, in the Hamden, and uh, the, the aircraft's being shot at, and all the flat goes inside the aircraft, and all the ammunition catches fire. So there's an inferno on it. This is 83 Squadron. Same squadron as um, Guy Gibson, who's on the same raid, and he saw it, and he said, yeah, it should have gone down. So the two, got, two guys jumped out, and John Hanna realises the pilot's still flying the aircraft. He's the last man out, the pilot, because he's got to hold it while the others get out. So he tries to put the fire out. Now that's only 33 inches wide, there's an inferno in there. He used two little extinguishers, his gloves, his hat, his, clo- his coat, bare rounds, and got the fire out. The floor's melting under the heat, it's full of smoke, he can't breathe. But he crawled through the aircraft, found the maps, and navigated the pilot back home. Saved his life. Oh, and he's only 18 years old. What? And Guy Gibson, we've already talked about, obviously. He's won every medal in there is over and over again. His VC was on his way, but he got it on the dam's ray because he flew side, side, side by side the other aircraft. To track the... Yeah, f- that's the it. yeah human target. What, what had he done before? But you said that there was a VC on the way to him before. Well, you won every medal you can right. uh, okay. over and over again. Right. So there's a point where, you know what, he's done his job and he's going to get the ice on yeah. for that. Flint in, and that, this, in the Hamden Bomber 41, that's 83 squadron as well, he was flying to uh, Osnabrück for a bombing raid. Two Messerschmitts 110s attack him. Somehow he got away from him, but the aircraft smashed up. Instead of turning back, he carried on did the bombing raid. He got a Distinguished Flying Medal for that. On the way back, they're going to finish him off. Filled him full of bullet holes, and he thinks what well, he's struggling to get back. They scarped on, on the way to England, 
and he had 800 yards left and he had to belly the aircraft into the sea because there's no power in the aircraft to get it over the cliffs of Cromer. Mm. So it's now in the water sinking, it's full of bullet holes and so is the raft and they're all swimming for it. However, he realised the navigator's... Instead, not, yeah, he swam back to the aircraft, pulled the dead weight of the body out and swam him 800 yards back to shore. He got the George Medal for that. And he died four years, five years ago. He's from Nottingham. So this is an important room, mm. even though there's hardly anything in it. And there's a lovely model down here. Of yeah, I, we don't, I don't know the history, but we used to own this years ago before I started, but um, somebody's borrowed it and just gave it back this year. So it is the Mona. Yeah. It's a very good model, and we are going to put a, a cover on it. We're, we're having a table and a cover built at Cranwell because <laughs> it's too big to get in the room with two tables. So we're going to have a purpose-built one built. But it is the Mona. And, and you can see there, there's the... Uh, torpedo nuts. Torpedo nuts, yeah. Mm. Well, is it possible to have a loop break? We've now moved into the hangar here, and it is full, surprisingly, of aircraft. We've got the Fallen Nat, which was the Red Arrow's first aircraft. We've got a couple of Hawks, but there's a lot more history to this. And, and back in the day of the mm. Dam Busters, Colin, what yeah. was going on in here? So this is a Dam Busters hangar. You could get six Lancasters in here. And on the night of the raid, they all met in here for the last time together at half eight, an hour before they're taking off. It's here. Wow. So, um, yeah, a lot of importance here. What, what's this, ha what hangar number is this? Hangar number two out of four, mm. Type mm. C World War II hangar, 300 foot long, 75 feet high, 155 feet wide. The doors, the six of them, they weigh between 40 and 60 tonnes each. Oh depending on how much ballast you want to put in. So World War II, they would filled it full of concrete to, so you can't get shot. Ah. And they just move it with a little handle. There's no electrics involved. Ah. A 10-year-old could open those 40-ton doors. Really? Yeah, no, just gearing. That's clever. So, uh, and what's the reason for the collection that you've got here? Well, there's remnants here of a World War I exhibition we had through Lincoln Aviation Heritage. So we've got a lot of World War One stuff. We've got a, a DH2 from Wickenby on loan, and that is a DH2, DH2 pusher aircraft. Yeah, from World War One. Yeah. yeah. So we've got a World War One exhibition. Uh, we've got the tail off a 617 tornado, 70th anniversary. There's only two of them. We've got one. Red Arrow Hawks two, Nat one, <laughs> two Vulcan cockpits. One of them we're repainting white. As is anti-flash 1957 colours, and it is a Scanton um, Vulcan. Brilliant. It's been in, it's been outside for 13 years, so we've cleaned it, craned it in, on loan, painting it. Hunter Aviation, which is on the base, they've got some hunters. We've got one here, and we've got a Phantom that's theirs, and Su 21 Sukhoi. What's that doing here? Well, I think they they basically hire them out. So if you want to try out your new radar or something, you can hire... Instead of taking a typhoon off the front line, yeah. you can put it in their kit. They'll fly it for you, and they've got three hunters that fly. Oh, nice. Put them in still, there. still flying. And all these aircraft flew in. If you a bit of polish on them, and away you go again. Oh, nice. Please. Well, let's polish them up. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Let's um, get going. Lynx trainer, World War II flight simulator. 
This is an extraordinary thing, which I've seen in old black and white newsreel footage. Just describe it to us, Colin, because it's It's a miniature aircraft. It's like a a cartoon, a physical cartoon. It's got tiny little wings. It's got tiny little tail. Yeah. And it's just, it's, I don't know how you, how would you describe this, Roy? I'd probably put a photo of it on our social media. <laughs> I think you might have to. It's, it's a great PlayStation in there, can not it? Yeah. <laughs> or a flight Siemens. Is it flight Siemens? So this is World War Two. World flight War II, Link's train, named after the guy who invented it in America, and that's what they used to train pilots on. So there's not, there's, but there's not a screen, is there? It's not like. So <laughs> what, if it was. How are they training? How does it train you? Is it just movement of rudders? Yeah, how it, it, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, yeah. Fantastic. James, you seem to be quite familiar with this. Was it your era? No. <laughs> this this uh, hadn't come in when I left the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> no, I remember my father talking about link trainers. And, um, yeah, it's just a... When you move the stick, etc., it's in the dark. So, and yeah. you also, you, you, so you can't see any outside movement. So it teaches you to trust your instruments. Right. That, that's the big thing. It takes yeah. away all, the, all your outside senses. And so when you move the stick, the instruments move as they should do if, you, if you're flying it. World War II, we had a room full of them just outside this hangar. Uh-huh. I found that out, yeah. So if you had this. And it, it, it's, is it mechanical? Does it actually yeah, it would move mechanical. forward? Yeah, so oh, it yeah. Feel, oh, right, so that makes yeah. sense. It's got bellows, I think, um, yeah. underneath. It does work. I don't like touching it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to break it. It's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what it looks like. It looks like so. the, uh, the aircraft that uh, Gromit flew yes. in Wallace and Gromit. That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. It's, and yeah. The fact also it has actual wings, which yeah. are just obviously useless. But they, <laughs> uh, they had an, uh, an aesthetic, which I think you, you couldn't, it wouldn't be the same without. Should we walk down here? So, yeah. Canberra's rear in 53. The cockpit there. That's ready for painting as well. I'll if everyone wants to look inside that, it yeah. is that's three men in there. Somehow. Uh, over there, you've got some nuclear bombs, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> don't knock them over. Don't sit on them. You just don't know. Yeah. The one that that. The the Echo DH one. The Curling Brothers and I got stuck under a camera door. Both of their backs have gone at the same time. <laughs> they do. I'm not quite sure what they're doing. I'm not sure if they're allowed to be doing this either. We are, we are stuck now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm in there. You come out after them. So the blue seal, I'll talk about that later in, in the Cold War room, but it's a bit of a collection here. Which one's the nuclear bomb? Uh, the green one. Yeah. Seventies, eighties, and nineties. One seven seven, it's called. And then that's the blue steel from the sixties. That's a thermal nuclear device. That's powerful. Very. Mm. And the 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 W one seven seven was a tactical nuke, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, when you hand over the nuclear deterrent to the Navy in sixty eight, we the RF still maintained a, a small quantity of these. And they were called the instant bucket of sunshine, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Blue steel. Blue steel. It has a rocket engine in, so imagine going to Moscow and it's heavily defended. You could drop this from, at low level, you could dro- drop it from 50 miles away and then the rocket motors kick in and we'll take it the rest of the way at Mat 3. And the warhead's in the front and then there's a gyro system that has your 1960s sat-nav down there that'll be in it. <laughs> 
So these are all Falcon bombs. Yeah, and they sort of hung, hung half out of the bomb bay, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. They're too big to get. Yeah, just underneath, yeah. 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 And then we hand it over to the Navy for the, the That's right, with the, the uh, Polaris submarine. and then the Trident. Yeah. Can I just show this game? I might have yeah, to please. Yeah. Yeah. It's a game, but it's very important. We first just want to probably talk about that later. So you get in your Lancaster, you go into Berlin, mm -hmm. you're 18 years old, you take off, what this does on, on the reds, Mm. If, it, if you spin that and it lands on a red, you're dead. Okay. Right? So we've got a tour ahead of us of 30 missions. So here's one of them. So on takeoff, the chances of, of death. death is quite minimal, and I've survived. Well, congratulations. Going over the coast. Mm -hmm. I'm alive. <laughs> Night fighters attacking. Um, 44, they're shooting upwards underneath and sneaking up on you. I've survived. So nice. Doing well. It will be relevant in a minute. Yeah. Over the target, you've got 10,000 guns in Germany. Oh. Dead. Right. So I've died on the first, first mission. mission. This game showed if you try and go around 30 times. Survive. Oh. What's the next moment of danger? More night fighters. Oh, my God, it's from the door. Yeah, it's relevant. It's a game. As games go, <laughs> it's got... Limited sales potential, I, I, I suggest, not, but it's an incredibly important... Maybe not one for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Well, it is for the kids, so, you know, that's the yeah, thing here. Yeah, no, that is true. The best I've done is three. Three. Really? Right, I'm going to go around. Right. Right, so Jeremy's now going to have a go. In your head, yeah, right. yeah. I'm, going, I'm going to go around. Taking off. I took off. And survived. Coastal flak. Didn't really give it much of a spin. I think he might have been chopped at this point. <laughs> Got past the night fighters. I'm over the target. Ooh, I've survived nice. over the target. Got to get home. Night fighters. Yes. Survived. Survived. Fatal damage. That could have been me landing. Yeah. Fuel, fog. So oh, yeah, you've and done a mission. Lucky. Lucky. Yeah. Well, I've gone a second tour, another 28. Yeah, 56 of three tours. That is pretty uh, startling, actually, when mm. you think of it like that. And those... a very good demonstration. Yeah. Right? So, timeline, 1916. The only picture on Google is over there. Six flight sheds and a load of wooden huts. On <laughs> um, the same where we are now. Was it called Scampton then? It started off as Brattle Bay and then it changed to Scampton. We're not sure why, we've tried to look into it, but it changed to Brattle. So this room in World War II was a crew room, so you come in and put your flying jacket on, your parachute, and pick up your flask and sandwiches. Uh, this room was a crew room for 617 Vulcan Dambusters as well. There's a documentary on YouTube about that and you can see these paintings in the background. So, again, history here. Muriel's painted by 617. 1943 Lancaster, 52 Canberra, 58 um, Vulcan, and then they went to Tornadoes and didn't play, so they didn't finish the picture. Mm. And we can never get rid of these. Now they're at Marham, they're 35s. This is our World War One room, obviously. And we do... There's a lot of uniforms here. Most of them are original. They're worth thousands. Mm. Cost a lot of money. That is a World War One. 
women's RAF uniform. Mm. So when the Irish started, so did the women's as well. Yep. That's rare. Mm. But, that's, but that's a Scampton Cook, <laughs> Mordlo. Uh, over here we have the first RAF uniform. And we have an American tunic because we taught them to fly in 1918 as well. So if you think back to World War One or prior to that, if you think about um, the Wright brothers in 1903, mm. 1908 is the first UK flight, and that was by an American. But three years later, after the first UK flight, the government are already looking at uh, these flying machines as weapons. 1912, the Royal Flying Corps uh, Royal, Royal starts, and the Central Flying School as well, which is the oldest flying school in the world, which is what the Red Arrows are. Mm -hmm. So it was just a balloon unit, and it was army guys that flew and navy guys that flew. 1918, Trenchard put the navy and the army together. Uh, yeah, navy and the army together and called the Royal Air Force. Is that so? It, that uniform carries on as green right. from the army days. The blue uniform, which we know of today, uh, Tsar of Russia was assassinated in 1918, and it cut short the Russian Revolution. There was a tonnage of blue uniform went to go to Russia. I didn't want it. So the RAF bought it. Yeah, yeah. Took till 1925 to, to move across, but yeah, that's how it was done. So everything here is World War One. Everything here is over 100 years old. So we're off the guides. <laughs> to World War Two room. Um, obviously, we start off there's a picture of the Hamden bomber. Uh, over there, we have the Manchester's here from 40. and. They had vulture engines which seized up. Rolls Royce mm -hmm. couldn't get them right. That's not good at when they seize up in the sky because they fall out. Yeah. So the RF cancelled the order. Roy Chadwick, he's got aircraft on production and he stuck four Merlins on. So underneath is the Manchester Mark III or the Lancaster. Then we went to Lincoln's after the war. Great aircraft, very powerful. They won't get an atomic bomb to Moscow. The Vulcan will. Mm -hmm. There's only 11 years between a Lancaster and a Vulcan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think about that. That is incredible. That always startles me, that fact. Yeah. Fact. Yeah, that's Roy Chadwick. Yeah. Centrepieces of Lancaster. This, uh, it's only, uh, it's um, ninth scale, one ninth scale. And it's actually a replica of S for Sugar, which is down at Hendon. So if you, when you see that aircraft, it's got the same right arm and all that. Okay. That's your giveaway. That's a Scampton Lancaster. We're not sure where this came from. I think it's an engineering model. Mm -hmm. One ninth scale. You can look inside. You see where all the seven crew members are. It really was puke green inside. <coughs> you would have smelt the oil from the engines. You would have smelt uh, the fuel in there. If it got coned up over Germany, they're going to put it in a spin to get out of the way of the lights. Mm -hmm. They smell the puke and all. Yeah. Also, the toilet down there. I'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> so it's, not, it's a metal seat. It's flapped down. It's only aluminium. It won't take a, um, a bullet from, from another aircraft. It'll just go straight through and rip you in half. And you're going to sit in that for eight hours. And when you go above 8,000 feet, you've got oxygen tanks. Those tanks are not going to let you walk around the aircraft. So you're relying on comms inside, and you can't shout over four Merlins. So it's very loud in there, and it vibrates, and it stinks, and it's cramped. The only armoury on it is behind the pilot's seat, because you don't want him to die. That's no. in trouble. But did the crews love them, or did the crews... I think it's like, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah it's an amazing aircraft. Yeah. I just want to put that across out, not yeah. as easy as it is, yeah. not the glamour thing about it at yeah. all. Not being shot at, shot at over Germany. And very cramped. Perspex, because brown and scratches, so the aircraft used to 
chase us and shoot from behind. So a lot of the uh, rear gunners used to take the perspex out. So then you're at 22,000 feet, it's minus 40. And the only, en the only heat is off number three engine. They were right in there. So it's not an easy, uh, not an easy job. Somebody told me uh, a story once, and I don't know if it's true, I can't prove it, but I did Google it and it's half right, but it actually all makes sense and it explains the aircraft. He knew a guy, he worked with a guy in the 60s called Bob Todd. Bob Todd is Benny Hill's sidekick. Okay. Yeah? Now, I Googled that and he's a rear gunner. So his story was, he sat in the back here and uh, he put his bags down one boot we put his flask down another. He sat on his parachute. He's so cramped and cold in there, he could only sit on it and put his sandwiches on his lap. That's how cramped it is. On takeoff, he fell out the back. Now he didn't. He tried to chase the aircraft down, mm -hmm. but he couldn't. So he hid. He didn't tell anybody because if you get out of a mission, mm -hmm. you're a coward. Yep. Lack of moral fibre. Yep. They'll they'll court martial you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So he hid. Got back on the aircraft three hours later on landing. They said, where you been? Where you heard from you? He said, I've been here all the time, but the comms went down. <laughs> Which proves <laughs> they only talk, they sit there for eight right. hours. Good call, yeah. sir. <laughs> Go away with it. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Well, everything there makes sense. It explains a lot. So, and, it, and I did Google, he's a rear gunner. So, yeah, it's a great story. Surrounded by memorabilia and helmets and yeah, there's a lot of personal boots. stories and uh, if you had time to read things, it's quite interesting. Pigeon, yeah, I've got a pigeon there when in Lancaster. So did every Lancaster have a pigeon? Yeah, I used to have a pigeon loft uh, on the edge of the airfield. Yeah. So if you read out a pigeon, uh, yeah, you'd put it in the aircraft and you could, if you're going to go and crash somewhere, you could quickly write what the coordinates and send the home. Pigeon home. That was the idea, and we did that. So also, they, I've read that they used to um, put it in a box when mm -hmm. they went on. But those boxes, of course, would be dropped off for the French resistance. Yeah. They could send us a message and send it back. So and and in a survival situation, they're also quite tasty, I believe. Uh, well, <laughs> there is a story about somebody uh, landing uh, in the middle of the sea on a raft, and he had nothing left to eat. <laughs> so he did. So in a year, we've talked about Red Hours a bit, but uh, I just want to show you a few uniforms here. So this one's Gary Waterfall, the highest-ranking Red Hour ever. He retired last year. I took his family round. They didn't, he didn't know they were here. He came in on a helicopter, took him to a secret meeting with uh, British Aerospace, and when they get there, the Red Hours gave him a party. And they said, which plane do you want? He went, Red 9. And they took him up, had a full display, and then his family went out to meet him. Oh, and even though I'll tell you that story, the fact that the, the uniform is Gary Waterfall, that's just a coincidence. Right, okay. That story is amazing, but it, it's a coincidence. We've got his uniform. <laughs> Kirsty Moore, the only Red Arrows female pilot, and then we've had two female managers. They're the uniforms. So when you look around the museum bit, we have a World War I female women's uniform, mm -hmm. World War II one down the bottom. Mm. Air cadets didn't have women, they had venture corps. They joined, then the venture corps were finished, and in 1980, you could have women in the air cadet. We've got one of them. We've got a Red Arrows pilot female uniform and a Red Arrows manager female uniform, and the only one missing, two years ago, we had a female station commander. All right. Now, when she came down to say goodbye, mm -hmm. 
had a coffee with us down there. You whipped my clothes off. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. You will be, well, yeah. We were I, uh, <laughs> oh, no. But apparently it's just a basic uniform with the right badges on, so we can recreate it. But, yeah, I, I was there on it. Like, oh, no. What's this? Well, this guy, tells, so there's a... Um, Feeds air in there, so when you put in a 6G uh, uh, turn, this inflates and keeps the air in your head and in your brain. So it's the G suit? Yeah, G suit, yeah. yeah. So a winter uniform like today, they'd just be wearing the, the basic green uniform. When they become red arrows, you're allowed to wear this, but you've still got the same G uniform, G suit. Perilously. If the air, if the air, if uh, the oxygen comes out your eyes, you pass out. Right, you need something to come in there. Yeah, that's Central Flying School. Mm. One more room. This is my favourite room. Yeah, Gate Gardens, there it is. That's uh, East Kirkby. That one. No, no, sorry, that's one. That one is Hendon. And then the other one is East Kirkby. It's East Kirkby? That went to East Kirkby. That's right, they bought it. Gate Guard here yeah. before. Ah, right, okay. That's not just Jane then. Yeah, the the yeah that one is yeah it's just changed yeah it was on the gate. Um, so yeah, Cold War room. This is this is my favourite room. Uh, so if you think about the atomic bomb going off, um, and we had a big input into that, but after the war they sent our engineers and scientists back to here, and we had to go solo. The Russians did the same, probably spying on us really for information. So all that mistrust between the two superpowers, that's the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So in 1948, the Americans sent a lot of aircraft over here and Scampton was part of that. And we had the B-29 superfortress there for a year. The official reason was because they were doing the Berlin airlift. And you can only get two of them in the hangar, which is pretty by six inches. It's pretty good for an American pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we had the B-29s for here. Then we, uh, we had the Lincolns and Shackletons here. And then by 52, we have the Canberras, four squadrons, 10, 18, 21, 28. They were here for three years, and the Vulcan's on its way. So they've got to extend the runway. So the runway at the time from World War II was three runways, and the biggest one was 6,000 feet. So you've got to put another 3,000 feet on it. To do that, because we're on a cliff, if you build the runway that way, it's going to fall off the cliff. If you go this way, you've got to smash through the A-15. And the A-15 is a Roman road. Roman roads are straight. It's called the Ermine. So now it isn't. If you look at the topography of Scanton, it's got a curve in it now. So there's the old A15. There's the curve. <laughs> so we've changed the base. That's what we did. Um, so we had the Vulcans here with nuclear bombs on. So if you think about the Vulcans, it was part of the V bombers. Uh, they were designed to fly at 50,000 feet with a nuclear bomb to Moscow. And the first aircraft to do that was a basic one, the Valiant. That did the job. However, the Victors and the Vulcans were on the way. It took longer, the better aircraft. So we had the uh, Balkans here. In 1960, back, Gary Powers got shot down. That shows the world that even though he was flying 13 miles in the air at 65,000 feet, a service to air missile can shoot it down. So the days of the RAF flying a bomb to Moscow, they're numbered. Mm -hmm. So the RAF says, well, we'll fly at 300 feet, which is below radar. So that's what they did. But when you fly low, you've got more turbulence. That shakes the airframe, shortens the life of the airframe. So by 64, the Valiants are finishing because they've fallen apart. 
uh, and uh, the victors were putting in, going into tankers, so the Vulcan was the best aircraft for low-level flight because of the delta wing. It's longer, the delta wing, mm -hmm. so the turbulence smashes, takes longer, and it's not so wide. And because it is a, a big wing, you've got two wing spars, so it makes it more stronger. So the Vulcan did the job, really, late 60s. And we had uh, 617 reformed in 68, uh, then we had 27 squadron, 83 squadron, and in 1975 we had 35 squadron. And then we also had the Hastings here, which supported them on different various roles. What was the Shackleton doing here? I think was it was just maintenance unit. It, was, it wasn't here, but, um, but I'm thinking it was just maintenance for oh, a while. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the base itself, if you look at the map, so this is where all your Vulcans sit, and they rotated the three squadrons. We also had 230, by the way, as well. Uh, you had four Vulcans here with a nuclear bomb on, and obviously the, every now and then, quite regularly, actually, the sirens would go off, tannoys, and away you go, four it's minutes. They're right at the, they're on the runway, almost. Yeah, so your primary, well, we'd always do it in defence. Mm -hmm. Your primary attack on Russia would be from these aircraft. They'd be off in four minutes, and they could, and they did, because the Russians were watching us sometimes, yeah. and then my fire were watching them, <laughs> watching us. <laughs> So they used to take off, but when you get sort of like a sticky situation like the Cuban missile crisis, um, you need to expand on that. So they could ship all these Vulcans out to different airfields around the country. So we were in the trouble with the Cuban missile crisis, which yeah. was the most dangerous part of the 60s. We could get off all together and do the job. Mm -hmm. That's what we'd do. Ten miles down the road at Binbrook, they had the lightnings. They were doing the same job. They would take off, and their job was to shoot down the Russians on the way here. Mm -hmm. Eight miles down the road, Hemswell, they had four uh, Thor missiles. They're half American, but they say it took 15 minutes to get off. So yeah. they were the second rea reaction. And if the lightnings didn't shoot the Russians down at Dunham Lodge, three miles away, you had uh, Bloodhound okay. missiles shoot them down. And even though Thor missiles were at Hemswell, this was airhead for. Scampton, and mm -hmm. they brought the missiles here and we took them down by road. And the spares could be taken to Foldenworth, eight miles down the road, and, and kept there. And also the, that raised ridge over there is also a nuclear bomb storage area. That was all happening in the 60s all yeah. the time. And you've got to think, these guys have got them in four minutes. Mm -hmm. They've got no warning. You're not going to ring your missus or your kids <laughs> and say goodbye. Yeah. Within minutes of lifting off, you're on the way to... A one-way ticket to Russia, nothing yeah. to come back to. Seven missiles from Russia were finished the UK off, yeah. Lincoln primary target. Yeah. They're on the way, avoiding mushroom clouds, and they're not going to speak to the missus kids. They'll be dead within minutes. Mm. That's the situation in the 60s. And that's what the base was. The missile itself, uh, the blue steel, which you've seen out there, the white one. Yeah. If you think back to Hiroshima, the, the, um, the first atomic bomb, that was the equivalent of 15,000 tonnes of TNT, and a week later they dropped one on Nagasaki, which is 19,000 tonnes of TNT. One was uranium, one was a plutonium. And you've got to compress them to smash the atom, which will smash other atoms, which creates a chain reaction, which creates heat and light. Mm -hmm. That's an atom bomb. Uh, we needed to do that ourselves. And, yep. and Prime Minister Attlee decided that. Five years later, we're dropping them in, in Australia on a valiant. We've done the job. We're back on the big table, but we're not. The Americans have moved on to thermal nuclear devices, which are called 
hydrogen bombs. That's using a, a atomic bomb to smash another atomic bomb to create a bigger, ten times more powerful bomb. So our first production hydrogen bomb, thermal nuclear device, yeah. blue steel, was 1.1 million tonnes of TNT. So your Hiroshima, YouTube, nice mushroom cloud thing, 15,000 <laughs> tonnes, blue steel, 1.1 million. That's 1.1 megatons, and the Russians went up to 50, and we went up to 3.8, and I think America went up to 38 megatons. That's way, way too big. Yeah. Don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to ruin your day. Even yeah. one megatons going to ruin yeah. your day. Yeah, you made them sandwiches for nothing. So <laughs> when you think now, nah, so by 68, here, they had a big party, mm-hmm. bomber command finishes, fight command finishes, become support command, and... Um, yeah, so he went to the submarines. Mm-hmm. So I know there's four or five thermal nuclear submarines out there, play cat and mouse with China and Russia all the time, mm-hmm. and we're pretty good at it. They can't find us. Mm-hmm. And the Tridents, I'm sure, I can only roughly speak for it, but I'm sure there's about eight warheads in a Trident which will go to different cities. Mm-hmm. And altogether there's probably 200 warheads over the four. So it's about 16... Tridents. Hmm. And that, my friends, this is the end of the tour. Colin, thank you so much. Colin, that was brilliant. Really, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're right at the end of the tour. This is the exit, but there's a there's a one final room here. What can you tell us about this? This is, as far as I know, probably the biggest uh, private collection of um, air cadets memorabilia. it's quite interesting, and we still have air cadets here quite a lot of the weekends. They, they have so an air cadet base here? Yes, yeah, so we've got an exhibition in there, and we've got all this kit in there, and it's, it's uh, worth looking at, yeah. Okay. And so can, uh, can anyone visit Scampton? Yes. Because it's not a museum, yes. it's, it's an RFA, so how can people come so here? you would have to email us, so because we're only here two or three hours a day, we're yeah. not, we've not got a manned phone, yep. no point in ringing, you email us, it goes straight through to somebody who controls that. Again, that's another volunteer who does it in his own time, he's got a full-time job, yep. uh, so he, he has the job of getting back to people, and he's talking about 60 emails a day, oh, wow. he works full-time. So maybe you we, might don't, get an we email. don't advertise it. <laughs> yeah, so we, he, you might get an email off him at 12 yeah. o'clock on a Saturday night, because okay. that's the effort he puts in. Amazing. Well, you all do a sterling job. Yeah, Thank I mean, you so and much just keeping some of this stuff alive is... It, Incredible, yeah. Particularly, I mean, Jess Vulcan, did you quite like that? Love the Vulcan, loved every or every picture in there is amazing. Lots of black and whites. Um, the history is just oozing out of every wall of this place. <laughs> I absolutely love it. How can you get rid of this? It's, exactly. There's so much it's such there. A significant I building. just skimmed across it. Yeah, there's 104 years of history because usually you do like a two or three hour. Three to hours, yeah. Three hours, it's yeah. a free tour, yeah. cup of tea at half time, yeah. <laughs> bit of a shop. You might get a red arrow flying up. Yeah, uh, it was Come an incredible day. And anything we can do to help protect this place when the Reds mm. leave to go to Waddington, let us know and, uh, you know, we'll chain ourselves to the... <laughs> to the Reds. Yeah. So I think once they find out we're behind keeping it here, it's, it's, it's safe, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, this... It's top landing gear.